You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production, healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's Radio, B-E-E-T-S dot com, code DEAL. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, 145 times 14... Hey, Gary. Hey. What's that? Huh? Oh, it's my old slide rule from middle school. Just trying to figure out how many calories in those Fostix fruity nutty bars I ate this week. Yeah, okay, but why the slide rule? What happened to your pocket calculator? I left it on the train a couple days ago. Well, you could do that multiplication with pencil and paper, couldn't you? Yeah, when I was in the eighth grade, I could. Not now. Never was into math much. I'm Seth Shostak, and he's Gary Niederhoff. Molly Bentley is on travel. Yeah, Gary, a lot of people say that they're not fond of math, but really, math is the queen of the sciences. Why is that? Can it move an unlimited number of squares in any direction? The German mathematician Carl Friedrich Gauss made that statement in the 19th century, you know, queen of the sciences, because mathematics, pure reason, turned out to be so good at describing nature. I mean, who could have imagined this little intellectual exercise, math, is the rule book used by nature? Gauss? I remember that name from my statistics class, the bell curve and all that. Yeah, that's right. Also known as a Gaussian curve. Useful for describing all sorts of things, from the motions of stars in big clusters to the distribution of political opinion. Statistics. Wasn't it Mark Twain who said there were three kinds of lies? Lies, damn lies, and statistics? Well, I guess he wasn't a big fan of statistics. But it's true that math is a tool, and you can always use tools to, well, make off-base arguments. So math can be misleading. Public probably figures that just because a news story quotes numbers, you know, things like a poll with a margin of error of 3% or something like that, it must be true. What was that? Oh, I just killed a fly with my slide rule. All right. There's just something about the psychology of numbers. I talked to Charles Seif, a professor of journalism at New York University, about this. He has a new book out about how people misunderstand math called Proofiness. So I asked him, why is it that if cosmetic maker L'Oreal, for example, claims that its extra volume collagen mascara gives lashes 12 times more impact, we're impressed? I mean, that's quantitative, 12 times. Is that why we're impressed? Because they used a number? We are trained to think that numbers are pure. 
Mathematicians know that numbers are as close as you can get to absolute truth. Two plus two is four, no matter what happens, no matter what you do, no matter how you look at it. The problem is that real-world numbers, numbers that come from measurement, numbers that come from science and observation, aren't pure like the pure numbers of mathematics. They're error-prone, they're faulty, and they can be made to lie. And bad numbers seem to have that aura of purity, even though that they have these flaws. Okay, so we're just misjudging their importance. Mark Twain talked about lies, damn lies, and statistics, and all three are often used to make specious arguments. Maybe you could give me an example. Well, the great-granddaddy of numerical lies uh, happened in the 1950s when Senator Joe McCarthy held up a sheet of papers, and he said, I have in my hand a list of 205 communists working for the State Department. That number, 205, gave his claims such specificity that even the White House uh, said, what does he have? He must have a list here. It turns out he didn't have any names. He had to go to a newspaper baron to say, could you give me some names, please? It was a made-up number, and the number changed. It went down to 87, back up. But because he gave that specificity to the number, because he was able to tag it with that number 205, people believed it, people took it seriously. And as a result, this obscure junior senator became one of the most divisive figures in 20th century politics. One of the points that I found very interesting in your book was this term casuistry, and I probably am mispronouncing it, but that seems to be the mistake of inferring cause and effect relationships from phenomena that seem to track one another. One example you cite, uh, there's the Princeton-Tokomac experiment, and this is just a long-running effort to develop practical nuclear fusion at Princeton University. And one of the people connected with selling the public on this idea tried to link cheap power with lifestyle, a better lifestyle depended on cheap power. And, you know, those two do seem to be linked. Yes, they're absolutely linked. The more power a country produces and consumes, the longer its citizens live, the fewer infant mortality deaths you get. Generally speaking, everyone's happier. The problem is it's an error to say that by building more power plants, by producing and consuming more energy, we will improve our lifestyle. Even though these two ideas are linked, one is not causing the other. You could just as easily say that the more internet we use, the longer people live. The more cars we drive, the longer we live. The more edible underwear we eat, the longer we live. And this is because we're a technological society, and the more technological society is, the better its hospitals are, the better its medical care, but also the more power it consumes, the more cars it drives, the more internet it uses, and the more edible underwear it eats. So, so indeed, the people who are producing edible underwear, and I have to say that's a product that I haven't uh, come across recently, but th- th- those people should be advertising, you will live longer by eating this underwear. It's the same argument. It's absolutely the same argument. And it occurs all the time. You have people saying that A is tied with B, therefore A causes B. It's all over the place, but it's really damnably hard to show that A causes B just because they're tracking together. I'm speaking with Charles Seif, the author of Proofiness, The Dark Arts of Mathematical Deception. Well, Charles, many of these things are somewhat, they're misleading, but they're by and large kind of harmless. But one example that's clearly not so harmless and that we've discussed frequently on this program 
is the claimed link between autism and the vaccination of children. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this is a long story and a large can of worms that I'm sure you've gone into in great depth. There is a movement uh, that believes that childhood vaccines, for various reasons, are responsible for causing autism in children. And there's been a number of theories out there. One which was recently discredited had to do with the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine specifically caused some leakage of virus through the gut. Another theory had to do with a preservative called thimerosal. And the idea was that thimerosal, which causes mercury, was somehow poisoning children's brains. The problem is all the evidence seems to point to the fact that these vaccines had nothing to do with the advent of autism. That, in fact, if you look at other countries where thimerosal was cut from use entirely, you saw no drop in autism rates. And this also may be a case where diagnosis is changing over time. If you look at California, there was a very rapid increase in autism in the late 90s, early 2000s. At the same time, there was a a very rapid drop in generalized mental retardation. So it looks like that this was actually a classification issue, that doctors are getting better at labeling and diagnosing autism rather than just lumping it with a, this is a general problem child. So this is a situation in which there's a lot of emotion. Obviously, if you have an autistic child, you want, you want to be able to blame something other than genetics or happenstance or whatever. And so I can understand that you misjudge the evidence. But in general, there's a problem here with uh, what you call risk management. We're very poor at judging real risks, despite a lot of statistics. I mean, people worry about their child being abducted while waiting for a school bus, and consequently they throw the kid into the car and they drive them to school, whereas, frankly, from a statistical point of view, that's the wrong strategy. Yeah, we we obsess over dramatic consequences with low risks, and we ignore the everyday mundane risks that we take all the time. And the autism vaccine issue is a good example. We vaccinate because there are deadly diseases out there, and our children, by vaccinating, reduce the incidence of these diseases. There is, with certain vaccines, some problems that occur, allergic reactions. You can even have something called anaphylaxis, if you're not careful, which can be deadly. But these issues are so rare compared to the mundane deaths caused by whooping cough, by measles, by diphtheria, that we really seem to obsess with the rare and dramatic effects rather than the mundane things. And as a result, we are caring about the wrong thing. Well, let me take the other side of that, because it isn't just a matter of overstating the risk of certain things, such as the the chances that your child will be abducted in the early morning waiting for a school bus. There's the question of understating risk. And that applies to the space business. You don't seem to think much of the private space initiative, such as uh, the one from Richard Branson of Virgin Galactic. Yeah, Virgin Galactic is now soliciting rides. They're trying to get people to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars for a quickie suborbital flight with a new launch vehicle. Now, historically, manned spaceflight has been a 1% disaster rate. From the beginning of of spaceflight to now, about one in a hundred times you lose the crew. And 
maybe technology can reduce that a little bit. Maybe it goes down to half a percent or so. But the thing is, one in 100 or one in 200 is a really high uh, risk. We're not aware of it. But if airplanes crash at the rate of spacecraft, we would be losing tens of thousands of people every day. It's simply unacceptable to have a one or a half a percent risk for things that we do every day. So to portray spaceflight, commercial spaceflight, as something that is just like a hop over the Atlantic is deceptive in my mind. It's portraying something that is extremely risky as something that is mundane. And I believe that once Virgin Galactic gets off the ground and they start launching people into space, they're going to lose passengers fairly rapidly. Yeah, I take it you haven't bought your ticket yet. Oh, no. (laughs) Not that I could afford it, but I wouldn't even if I could. Perhaps nothing typifies proofiness uh, as much as polls. We have polls about politics, of course, but also about everything else, including sex and UFOs, and sometimes those two subjects combined. But polls... While they might sound authoritative, they can go wildly awry, can't they? I mean, people don't seem to understand the errors inherent in polls. Whenever a journalist talks about a poll, you'll see some lip service about the margin of error. And the margin of error is this catch-all term to describe the problems with taking a small sample of people and extrapolating to the entire population. And journalists tend to treat, if there's a small margin of error, it means that the poll is a good one. The problem is... When polls go wrong, the margin of error never captures what the problem is. Often, polls are biased. The nature of the language makes it almost preordained that people will choose one person over another in a a popularity contest, or that they will choose one opinion over another. People lie to polls all the time. If you take a sex poll, you will always find that men have more sexual partners, heterosexual sexual partners, than women do. Now, this is impossible because every time a man has sex with a woman, a woman has sex with a man. So on average, they're having the same number of heterosexual sexual partners. But consistently, polls show that men have sex with more women than vice versa. All right. So, Charles, the bottom line, what's the take-home message here? Better numeracy, more math skills... Or or is this just a hopeless case that we're going to live with forever? I think that there's a very deep problem in our society that we we don't understand numbers and uh, we don't have the knowledge to spot a bogus number when it comes our way. I think the take-home message really has to be when there's a number that comes your way, sniff it. Does it seem right? Does it seem like it comes from a reputable place? And does it make sense It may be that it doesn't, and if your BS detector is going off, there's usually a good reason for it. So never take a number as gospel. Always give it a sniff. Charles Seif, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Charles Seif is a professor at New York University and the author of Proofiness. You still trying to do your multiplications on that slide rule, Gary? Yeah, but I'm not sure where to put the decimal point. Well, it's always a problem with slide rules. Look, uh, why not use my four-banger? It got it right here. It's not really cheating. Here. Hey, this is a pretty nifty calculator. It's 12 times better than the one I left on the train. You know that that calculator, Gary, not to mention your cell phone, your iPad, and all that other high-tech gear you carry around, depends on quantum mechanics... No, do I need to know that? Well, maybe not, but transistors, which are the basis of all modern electronics, 
actually work thanks to this weird physics that scientists developed in the 20th century. We'll hear more about how quantum mechanics came about and how it's shaping our lifestyles in a moment. It's Method to Our Mathness on Are We Alone? I am never forget the day I'm given first original paper to write. It was on analytic and algebraic topology of local Euclidean metrization of infinitely differentiable Riemannian manifold. Boy, This I know from nothing. Welcome back to Are We Alone? I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Gary Niederhoff. Molly Bentley's on travel. That was Tom Lair singing about a mathematician named Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. Analytic algebraic topology of locally Euclidean metricization of infinitely differential Riemannian manifolds. That sounds like a tough homework problem. Did this guy Lobachevsky actually exist? Now, you betcha, 150 years ago. He was a Russian mathematician famous for developing non-Euclidean geometry. Famous, huh? What's non-Euclidean geometry? Well, you may remember being taught that parallel lines never meet. Uh Okay, you know, if you strap two laser pointers side by side, the beams will shoot out to infinity without ever crossing one another. That sounds right. That has to be right. Right? Well, it is in a Euclidean universe, the kind you learned about in school. But Lobachevsky considered a kind of space where parallel lines might meet, those laser beams might cross. Sounds perverse, but so what? Was this just a mental exercise? Well, it turns out that the real universe, the one we live in, might not be Euclidean. In particular, Lobachevsky's strange geometry turns out to be useful for Einstein's theory of general relativity. The universe seems to be, in some sense, non-Euclidean. So this abstruse and abstract math might really be describing the universe? That's nutty. I mean, that's like claiming that modern art depicts reality better than photographs. Hey, Gary, consider our view of atoms, so-called quantum mechanics. I mean, that's pretty non-intuitive, too. Matter that does weird things and behaves sometimes like waves. In Newton's time, physics was simple. The math was straightforward. But the mathematics of quantum mechanics was just weird and bizarre. And yet today... Quantum mechanics has tons of practical applications, from computers to cell phones. I spoke to Jim Kakalios, a professor at the University of Minnesota, who's written a book entitled The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics. Most people think quantum mechanics is this very difficult-to-understand mumbo-jumbo that only works out at the particle accelerators, such as the Large Hadron Collider out in Geneva, Switzerland. But really, quantum mechanics underlies nearly all the technology we use all the time. Cell phones, laptop computers, magnetic resonance imaging, DVDs, iPods, even television remote controls. None of these are possible without semiconductors and solid-state physics, neither of which are possible without quantum mechanics. So really, to explain how what appears to be an esoteric science really is all around us, I thought this would be a good opportunity to try to demystify the subject somewhat. Well, I know that you're a great fan of science fiction, particularly the comics, the pulp fiction that uh, of of your youth and and mine too, now (laughs) that I think about it. And it featured all kinds of really wondrous superheroes. Uh, you've, You've written a book about the physics of superheroes. Well, in the 1950s, Were these comic books touting a future festoon with devices based on quantum mechanics? (laughs) No, actually. They promised us that by the 21st century that we'd have jetpacks and flying cars, when what we got instead were cell phones and laptop computers. Personally, I feel lied to. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) on the other hand, they knew that there would be computers in the future, And they figured they'd be powerful, and at the time, computers used vacuum tubes. So to make a a large, powerful computer, you needed to make it bigger. 
And so the computers envisioned in the future would be the, were the size of rooms or even larger. And at that point, only a few corporations and the government would own computers. There'd be no reason to link them together. There'd be no reason for the Internet or the World Wide Web. So really, without transistors, which again, are development of solid-state physics, you wouldn't have the ubiquitous computers. You wouldn't have the web. Now, for anyone who hasn't fought their way through sophomore physics in college, quantum mechanics probably sounds like something incredibly esoteric, or maybe it's just a bunch of tiny, tiny guys who work on your cars. And yet, quantum mechanics was kind of forced onto scientists at the beginning of the 20th century. Can, can you give me a brief description of why they had to abandon Newton and 300 years of classical physics? You're absolutely right. The weird ideas of quantum mechanics were not introduced simply for the sake of being weird. They were desperation moves on the parts of physicists trying to understand experiments that classical electromagnetism and thermodynamics just could not handle. One of the, the basic things is why are neon lights red or sodium uh, street lamps give off a yellow glow? It turns out that every element emits only particular wavelengths of light a unique fingerprint for each element. And to try to understand why this unique spectrum, if you go with the solar system picture of an atom, a positively charged nucleus and negatively charged electrons orbiting, classical electromagnetism says they should emit continuous spectrum of light, like a rainbow of colors, when each element actually only gives off a unique line spectrum. This was one main driving motivation to develop quantum mechanics. Why these spectra and not any others? Quantum mechanics does a beautiful job of accounting for the world we see. Early on in your book, uh, this I found really amazing, you listed the three important statements of quantum mechanics. You <laughs> boiled it all down to, you know, 50 words or something. Can, can you briefly just give me, the, what are the three things that typify quantum mechanics. Right. Quantum mechanics in three easy steps. That light, which is usually considered an electromagnetic wave, is actually comprised of discrete packets of energy called photons. That matter actually has a wave-like nature associated with its motion. And that everything, matter and light, has an intrinsic rotation, angular momentum, or spin, that can only have discrete values. But does this really mean that a, say, bowling ball hurtling down a lane behaves at all like a wave? Yes, but <laughs> one of the principles of quantum mechanics is the larger the momentum, the smaller the wavelength of this wave. And if you ask physicists, we get into arguments about what exactly do we mean by this wave, but there's, there's a true wave-like nature. Now, bowling balls are big. They're made of a lot of atoms. So even if it's moving relatively slowly, it'll have a large momentum because momentum is mass times velocity. And so it has a big momentum. So its wavelength is trillions and trillions of times smaller than an atom. And it's impossible to detect by any means that we can think of. However, for an electron, obviously it has a much smaller mass. And an electron, at the speeds that it's moving inside an atom, its wavelength is about the size of the atom. So for the electron in the atom, you can't ignore, it's impossible to ignore that wave-like nature, whereas for baseballs or people or cars, it's impossible to detect this wave-like nature. So this is why it was never observed, it was never conceived of up until the turn of the last century when people were trying to understand the details of what went on inside atoms 
And this hypothesis turned out to be a crucial clue. I'm speaking with Jim Kakalios, the author of The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics. Well, one of the stranger consequences of this, this this wave-like behavior, is that you can't really localize a particle. You can't really say it's right here. So if we don't know where it is, does that mean that it's kind of like Chicken Man? It's everywhere? (laughs) Well, yes and no. What quantum mechanics tells you, there's an equation proposed by Erwin Schrodinger, the Schrodinger equation, and it says, you tell me the forces acting on an electron in an atom, and I'll tell you the probability at some point in space and time of finding the electron. And if you know the probability, you can calculate things like the average radius, the average energy, the the momentum, and so on. And you do experiments, and when you compare it to the average radius, the energy, and so on, you get beautiful agreement. But you can't actually measure exactly where the electron is. And so quantum mechanics gives very precise and verifiable predictions for every experiment that we can conduct. And on the things that we can't measure, it gives kind of nonsense. (laughs) So this is where a lot of the confusion and a lot of the hallway arguments, even among physics professors, come from. But it really is a beautiful theory. One of the most amazing things about quantum mechanics is that you can use it correctly and productively, even if you're confused by it. <laughs> All right. Well, this idea that you can't nail down the position of, of a, a particle because of the, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a wave. I mean, I, I guess in, in one sense, that means that I could wake up tomorrow and find out my brother has quantum mechanically tunneled to, to, to China. Uh, but I, I suspect that's not very likely to have happened. Uh, but you would have to wait many times longer than the age of the universe. Um, for something like that to happen. (laughs) And so uh, your brother's probably okay. Yeah, but but this does have real practical consequences when you're talking about the atomic scale, right? Absolutely. So you mentioned quantum mechanical tunneling. If you have two metals separated by the vacuum of empty space, the electron will have a probability of being in the first metal, no probability of being in the gap, but a small but non-zero probability of showing up in the second metal. And sometimes as it's moving, its wave can leak out through the vacuum gap and show up in the other metal. This is a very strange phenomenon that's called quantum mechanical tunneling. If I send a million electrons at this barrier, maybe only 100 will get through. And I don't know which 100 will get through until I send them, but I can predict very accurately, and it turns out to be correctly, how many on average will get through. You have tunneling diodes in your cell phone. The sensor that reads the magnetic bits of information in your hard drive all make use of this phenomena called tunneling. This is not some esoteric quantum mechanics nonsense. Real products that we use every day make use of this phenomena in a routine, dependable way. And it's made possible only through our understanding of quantum mechanics. When did that begin? When when did we first turn quantum mechanics from uh, uh, an oddball theory into something <laughs> that, you know, you could buy in a store. Right. It took a while. The first ideas for the quantum nature of matter and energy started in 1901 with Max Planck, but modern quantum mechanics really began in 1925, 1926, when uh, Schrodinger and Heisenberg published their theories. By the way, also publishing in 1926, Hugo Gernsback starts publishing Amazing Stories, the first science fiction 
uh, pulp magazine. So you have these two visions of the future starting off within months of each other. One leads to Buck Rogers and death rays, and the other leads to cell phones. Uh, so that's in the mid-1920s and 30s. Scientists are trying to understand how atoms interact and how they interact with light just because they want to understand the universe. A generation later, another group of scientists develops the laser, and separately a group develops the transistor. A generation later still, you get CDs, iPods, DVDs, cell phones, laptop computers, pretty much everything my teenage children would say, without which life is not worth living. <laughs> None of these are possible without the transistor and or the laser, neither of which are possible without quantum mechanics. If you went to Schrodinger and said, nice equation, Erwin, what's it good for? He's not going to say, well, if you want to store music in a compact digital format, but really without the curiosity-driven research of a handful of scientists, the world we live in would look profoundly different. Well, let's turn a little bit to the future, Jim. Uh, toward the end of your book, you speak a bit about something called quantum entanglement, mm. right? Which, you know, uh, on the face of it, looks like it might allow faster-than-light communication. Is that yes or no? Well, on the face of it, it might, uh, which is one of the reasons why Einstein hated this idea. That, that's the thing he called uh, spooky action at a distance? Was that exactly so. Mm. That's exactly what he referred to. And basically, you can get two waves to interact with each other, and so they kind of form like a ribbon that could be infinitely stretchy. And so you can do something to one end of the ribbon, and it is felt all throughout the ribbon at the same time, no matter how far you've stretched the two ends apart. So that's this idea of quantum entanglement and how you could transfer information from one point to another, possibly faster than light. There are scientists that are working on developing quantum computers that make use of this phenomena. It's very difficult, and anything that could disturb this stretched ribbon, like interacting with the outside world, can destroy this coherence, this superposition. And once you snap the ribbon, of course, doing a measurement on one end doesn't affect the other end at all. So there's some very real, non-trivial, challenging problems to overcome before we ever get true quantum entangled quantum computers, but people are working on it very hard nonetheless. Do you think we'll have faster than light communication, or do you think it's actually ruled out and we just don't realize it? I might have to punt on that. Being able to prove it, being able to verify that, it's a gray area, and experts will disagree on that. And when you say, will we ever have you're allowing a very long time frame. So that allows me, if you say, well, we have, say, in the next five years, the next 10 years, I'd say almost certainly not. But if you say, will we ever have, when you compare what life was like just a couple of hundred years ago to what it is now, it's hard to say what we'll never have. All right. Well, finally, Jim, the superheroes of your youth promised that by this stage in history, as you noted, we'd have flying jetpacks and maybe robots that would bring you a drink while you watch television. We don't, <laughs> we don't have that stuff. Are you disappointed? Yes and no. <laughs> on the one hand, nobody misses jetpacks more than I. On the other hand, it would be hard to give up the web, <laughs> which really was enabled by the integrated circuit and the microcomputer being able to have computers be small and relatively cheap and ubiquitous. Basically, those writers of those science fiction pulps and comic books thought that we'd have a revolution in energy, which is what you really need in order for jetpacks or flying cars to work. 
when what we got was a revolution in information. And that information age was made possible through semiconductors and solid-state physics. Energy, you're limited by the chemical interactions of the atoms and molecules. But information, you're limited only by your imagination and your creativity. And history has shown that that's a barrier that we can break all the time. Jim Kakalios, thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Jim Kakalios, author of The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics, is a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Minnesota. Quantum mechanics is the way we describe the physics of the very small, but relativity forms our description of the very large, the entire cosmos. Well, physicist Leonard Mladenov has just written a new book with Stephen Hawking about cosmology, the physics of all existence. It's called The Grand Design, and in it the authors are being a bit provocative by saying that we no longer need God as a creator of the universe. What we're saying by that is science can explain the origin of the universe and also why the laws of physics are what they are. And those two issues are issues that uh, in past centuries uh, science uh, could not explain, and people turn to theology or philosophy for the answers. But we're saying now that uh, that's not necessary. Science, which can be tested and verified, can actually come up with the explanation for those issues. Well, my first thought when you say something like that is one of the rationales for invoking God was the fact that the universe doesn't seem to have been here forever. There was a beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, and and consequently something must have started things. But there's no necessity to invoke the supernatural for that anymore? Well, one thing that science tells us, and this is a bit counterintuitive, is that space and time are intertwined, and they interact with each other, and they interact with the matter and all the energy in the universe. So in in our everyday life, according to our intuition, Space is a framework that we, that we move it within, and time is the tick, tick, tick of a clock, and we think we understand, we have an intuitive understanding for these, or that, that time is one thing, space is a separate thing, and that our presence or the presence of matter and energy does not change the ticking of the clock or, or how space is structured. But what we learned about 100 years ago was that that's not true. That's true in an approximate sense, and with the crude instruments of our, of our senses, that's the way it appears. But when we use modern technology and, and scientific inquiry, we find that that is not exactly the way it is, and, and that in certain realms of the universe where the conditions are extreme, it's, it would become very obvious that that's not the way it is, but we don't happen to live there. So when we, when we put that together and we go backwards in time, we find that as we go back and back toward earlier and earlier times, time seems to bend around and become something like a different direction of space. And so the question of what is the beginning is not really, uh, does not really make sense. It's something like asking, you know, what is the edge of the Earth? And we know that since the Earth is a sphere, we're living on the surface of a sphere, there is no edge. We used to think there would be an edge, and we used to ask questions like that when we thought the Earth was flat. But since it's curved, we know that there is no edge, and that answers that question. And similarly, the question of the beginning of time has a similar answer. So, in other words, our intuitive feeling of what time is, as you say, some sort of independent parameter of the universe that just goes, keeps on ticking, takes a lick and keeps on ticking, <laughs> that, that, that this, is, this is a bit naive, that it's, in a sense, a, another manifestation of things that we call space. And consequently, does it make any sense to ask the question that you get all the time, which is, what was there before the Big Bang? Uh, you know, where we, where we live, 
we believe that the laws of physics are the same everywhere and at all times in the universe, but the conditions are different, and under different conditions, things behave quite differently, and so we shouldn't expect our intuition about the everyday world to apply to regions outside black holes or at times near the beginning of the universe. And they, they you know, are, the mathematics of our theories tell us that, that, it, that things are quite different in those conditions. Okay, so when somebody asks you, what was there before the Big Bang, what do you tell them? That, that would imply a naive interpretation of a timeline, and that this timeline curls around in the end, and there is no beginning. Hang on, we'll return to Leonard Mladenov and the grand design in just a few cosmic moments. I'm Gary Niederhoff, and this is Method to Our Mathness on Are We Alone? We now return to Seth's conversation with physicist Leonard Mladenov. Now, what about the other big question that is addressed by the book? And, and I suppose many people have thought about this, even if they're not physicists. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because after all, you're lying, you know, in your bed at night, you know, contemplating the semi-infinite, and, and it occurs to you that, well, maybe existence might never have happened, that there was just an eternal void, and yet there is something. And the answer to that comes from the other major new and weird theory that was invented about 100 years ago. The, the one we were just talking about was uh, general relativity, which describes space and time and gravity. And the other theory is quantum theory, which well, was developed around the same time. It has other weird ideas <laughs> built into it. And it, in quantum theory, one of those weird ideas that has, by the way, been tested many times in 10 or more decimal places of accuracy is that nothingness is, in a sense, unstable, that from nothingness, things are constantly coming and going, and that you can't have a pure nothingness that remains that way forever. And that's the other, the other ingredient that we need to explain that the universe came from nothing. So in our book, we talk about that concept and how the universe could have arisen from nothing and, and doesn't really need to have, been, have had a seed or a creator. So it sounds like what you're saying is that it was inevitable that there would be something because the universe is unstable to being nothing. Exactly. And, and, and we also talk about how not just our universe, of course, it wasn't a one-time thing, but many, many, many universes were created from nothing. Well, that's a point that uh, seems to be very much in vogue these days, namely that there could be more than one universe, this multiverse idea. And the usual rationale that you hear for that is that, well, our universe seems to be particularly friendly to the evolution of life, our existence, and so forth. And if you change some of the fundamental physical constants, uh, you know, a little bit, that maybe you wouldn't have stars, planets, you wouldn't have us, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And one explanation for that is to simply invoke God, and God just said, make it so, and here's the perfect universe for us. But the other possible explanation is you have lots and lots of universes, and most of them aren't very interesting, but some of them by chance are good, and we just won the lottery. It sounds like you're saying, well, no, that's not the reason we have a multiverse. That isn't the rationale for the multiverse. Seth, it's very important that the multiverse idea that we talk about is not a theory that was invented to explain this fine-tuning that you're referring to. That would, to me, not be a very compelling theory to say, uh, well, we live in a very seemingly special universe, so let's imagine there are many universes, and that would explain it. It's not the way it is. The multiverse that, arrived, that we talk about in our book is a, is a prediction or a consequence of Stephen's theories of how the universe began. So it's a, it's a derived prediction of that theory, it's not something that was cooked up to explain the fine-tuning. 
The multiverse idea, now it's been around for a while now. Uh, well, that's very interesting, Seth, because it's not just Stevens' theory. What we're talking about is a mixture of cutting-edge physics, some physics, of course, that's been around for a long time, and Stevens' latest thinking about how the universe came into being. There are other theories about how the universe came into being that are competing with his theory, and interestingly, a, a lot of us, most of the theories, I think, these days do involve, uh, do require or demand a multiverse. So it just seems like that's the direction that cosmology as a field is going, whichever theory ends up being the correct one. Well, I have to ask this. Are we going to see confirmation or otherwise of the idea of a multiverse any time in our lifetimes? I mean, is there any hope of proving that there are other universes out there? Well, you never know. I mean, the, the, the multiverses are probably unobservable, but that doesn't mean that, that they can't be indirect effects, just as the, some of these virtual particles that come up and, and disappear again from the vacuum are not observable directly, but they do have indirect effects. But the bottom line is that whether or not we observe the other multi the effects of the multiverse, if the theory is confirmed based on other predictions that it makes, and the theory demands the multiverse, then as a scientist we would give some sense of reality to that multiverse. We would believe in the multiverse. So we don't have to specifically test the multiverse to have confidence in it. What we need to do is to test the theory itself. And I have to say that you know, various elements of the ingredients in the theory have been well-tested, but the specifics of the theory itself really await testing to, to determine whether Stevens' theory or competing theories are correct. And the best hope for that comes from the cosmic microwave background radiation that our, our satellites are, are now observing and the fine details of, of that radiation, which is essentially the afterglow of the Big Bang. Well, finally, Leonard, since we're talking about theories and really, in a sense, almost philosophy here, there's been sort of a holy grail, I guess, for what, three millennia in physics, which is to find the theory of everything. You know, one theory that explains it all. I, I seem to gather from your book that this might be too simple an idea, the, the fact that one theory could explain it all, whether it's M theory, which I take it as some sort of uh, string theory or something else, that maybe that's not the correct explanation of the universe. Are, are, are we going to find a theory of everything, or should we sort of give up on that and look elsewhere? Stephen believes that uh, M theory is the theory of everything. Uh, I think what you're referring to is that it's not necessarily believed. We don't know if it's a single theory. It may be a, a network of overlapping theories. So in that sense, there is no single theory of everything, but one could consider this network of theories to be just as good, to be a, uh, you know, a, like an atlas, uh, just like an atlas of maps, it's an atlas of theories, and together that atlas describes everything in the universe. But we don't really know, and, and uh, when Stephen was asked recently if he, would, if he could travel in time, whether, would he rather go backwards 100 years or forwards 100 years, uh, he said he would like to go forward 100 years so that he could see if M theory and his theories have been verified. So we all in science you know, recognize that we're making theories and we're constantly testing and that whether or not they are valid will be shown by uh, experiment and observation and not through our, the pure um, power of our minds. Well, then I can't resist asking you, Leonard, if it turns out that it takes a network of theories to explain our cosmos and all the other cosmi that might be out there, if that's the plural, is physics still beautiful then? I, I think physics is beautiful because you can come up with some idea here on, on Earth based on some observations you make, you know, with a telescope or in the lab, and then, and then you can look back into the universe, uh, you know, 14 billion years at light that's coming to us from back then, and you can measure the characteristics of the light, and you can find that it matches <laughs> what your equations say. And if you have any feeling for math at all or for uh, the study of nature, I mean, that, that's mind-boggling and beautiful. Whatever form the theory has, 
the idea that, that an idea that you have could correspond to several decimal places to observations that you make of things that happened a zillion miles away and a zillion years ago is, is beautiful. Leonard Mladenov, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Seth. Physicist Leonard Mladenov's latest book, co-authored with Stephen Hawking, is The Grand Design. So, Seth, mathematics can do it all. I mean, the DNA of the universe is really mathematics. It defines the structure, the blueprint. Yeah, well, as anyone who's taken high school physics or chemistry knows all too well, math is the language of science. Also engineering. For sure. But just because scientists can usually do math doesn't mean they should also do engineering. I mean, there was the famous case involving George Airy. Airy? Yeah. He was the English astronomer royal in the mid-19th century. And like most astronomers of the time, he was really a mathematician. It turns out Airy was alive during the first great age of railway construction and was consulted on the stress levels on bridges caused by winds, you know, the wind load. Well, what happened was that the engineer for the North British Railway built a bridge across the Firth of Tay in Scotland using Airy's estimate of the wind stresses. Shortly thereafter, the bridge collapsed, and Airy took some flack for that. I mean, in the real world, you need to allow a certain margin of error. Maybe astronomers shouldn't design bridges. Keep that in mind, Seth. Hey, did you ever work out that calorie count? Yeah, thanks to your pocket calculator. Well, that makes me wonder, Gary, since everyone now has some device that can do calculations, do kids still know how to do arithmetic with pencil and paper? I mean, if they can't, that just doesn't sound good to me. Well, why not? I mean, if you have a calculator, why do long division on paper? Well, I don't know, but it just seems like a skill lost. I recently talked with math professor Amy Ellington about this. I asked her if today's young people can still manage arithmetic without some sort of electronic aid. Research is showing that they can, that the calculator has not had a significant impact on students' abilities to do mental calculations or do paper and pencil calculations, as we call them. So although I assume they could still do addition and subtraction, I didn't figure they could do, for example, long division. We, we spent a lot of time learning how to do long division when I was a kid. Can they still do that on paper? What we are finding is that calculators are not changing what the students can do. It's having an impact on what educators are selecting for children to do. So we spend less time on some of the more detailed procedures, but we're picking out the ones that are the most important for them to know how to do. Uh, can you give me some examples of what you mean by that? Doing a long division problem with single or double digit work is still part of the curriculum but doing a long division problem with four or five digits is not something that teachers are going to spend time with children on. Okay, but what about the consequences of other technology that seems to dumb down some jobs? I mean, I'm thinking here of cash registers that compute your change. I mean, is, is that actually a good thing or is it a bad thing? Maybe there are fewer errors, but on the other hand, I, I figure that these people don't even get to do that very simple math. That's a good point. What we are finding as technology is becoming more prevalent in the classroom, teachers need to spend more time on and are spending more time on working with children on mental math types of activities and, and encouraging kids to develop those skills that perhaps weren't explored as much in previous years when we spent a lot of time doing drill and practice with paper. 
there's more of a prevalence to helping kids work on those sort of mental skills. Well, that kind of brings up my hobby horse when it comes to math ability amongst the, the general populace, and that is estimating orders of magnitude. I mean, if you ask people roughly how many gallons of gas are burned up in the United States each day, most of them would look at you blankly. I had the feeling they would and, and would be unable to give you any number at all. They couldn't even get an order of magnitude number, one that's right within, you know, a factor of two or three. Can, can they do that? Could they ever do that? That's a good question. It certainly is an area that needs even more work. There's, there's a lot more emphasis on doing things like that and working on applications of mathematics in real-world areas that would require doing applications related to physics and chemistry and things like that so that children can see why those types of calculations, mental ideas are important. Well, I don't know. Again, this is just my personal predilection, and it is to to worry about the fact that when I see young people having to do the simplest math, they pull out their you know, some electronic device that has a calculator on it, and they do it that way. And then I, I ask myself, well, maybe I'm worrying about nothing. I mean, people don't know how to clean fish anymore, most of them, because they can buy it ready to go at the local supermarket. Am I worried about people not knowing how to ride horses when we have cars? <laughs> no, I, I think you have a significant worry, one that we definitely, in mathematics education, are working on. We certainly want a population that understands what they're buying and how they're buying it, even though the numbers are spit out of the cash register as opposed to being figured by some person. But I do believe that's something that is being worked on and is getting more notice in the classroom than perhaps it did 20 years ago when calculators first came out and we threw them at kids and used them for everything. Well, finally, Amy, I got to ask you, Can you do square roots with paper and pencil? Yeah, I can do them. I don't think we ask children to do them very much. And there's things we don't ask children to do at all anymore, really. For example, there isn't very much call these days for rationalizing the denominator of a fraction if it has a square root in it, because what was the point of that to begin with? Well, Amy Ellington, I want to thank you very much for uh, speaking with me. Thank you. Amy Ellington is a professor of mathematics at Virginia Commonwealth University. And by my reckoning, that's the end of our show. Figured that out on my pocket calculator, did you, Gary? Our thanks to Barbara Vance and Jay Weiler for their help in putting this show together. Also, we very gratefully acknowledge support from Rena Shulsky and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. And our generous listeners. If you'd like to comment, congratulate, or just sound off about our program, please visit Are We A Blog on the Are We Alone website or our Facebook page. All right, comes out to 2,030 calories. Wow, those Fostix Fruity Nutty Bars are kind of fattening. Sure glad the wrappers say they're good for you. 